This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Good morning. Good morning for what, Selena Hill? And welcome to Let Your Voice Be Heard right here. 90.3 FM, WHCR. Yeah, did you like growl into the mic, Stanley? I don't, I don't no. know what that was. You were like, uh, I don't know what. Okay, <laughs> DMX. I don't know what Stanley <laughs> said. <laughs> So like my voice is that was the most adorable bark ever. Do not ever no (laughs) no that's how he barks on the track. No, that's not how DMX barks. DMX what is DMX doing these days? Crack. Yeah, Stanley. (laughs) We don't know that for a fact. Yes, we do. Anyway. It's likely. We'll leave it at that. Yeah. Oh, God. All right, guys. So um, it's Sunday morning. We're happy to be back. Good morning. Happy Sunday. My name is Selena Hill. And on Twitter and Instagram, it's Miss Selena Hill. And I spell it with an MS. Are you really just going to yawn through my intro, Stanley? That was so rude. Mm, you bore me so much. <laughs> Already, right? Mm-hmm. And on Snapchat, it's S.Hill2020. Don't ask me what the 2020 stands for. And I'm happy to be back. It's been one whole week. Yeah, I'm about to say, like, back from what? We just, like, this is the regular <laughs> schedule. Yeah, show. Somebody had wrote that on, I think, Instagram page. I was like, oh, we're back. And they're like, from what? <laughs> yeah, like, and you always write the same message. So, they, like, if people right. just ignore it after a while. I don't even look at the messages anymore. You need to, all right, I, I, I stopped that. I stopped doing that. No, she that. didn't. So, guys, my name is Stanley Fritz. I am your favorite person in the world. Sometimes I engineer. Sometimes I talk. Sometimes I pontificate. But all of the time, I am the best person in the room and the best looking person you can follow me on twitter at stan fritz or on instagram at dark skin swindle or on snapchat our dark skin swindle and i snap about once every two weeks because i have a life unlike selena who snaps everything going to the bathroom <laughs> drinking some water I don't do that. I, i'm not one of those people fyi i Unless snap significant things she's not on snapchat so she but wouldn't know she's been around you and you tried to snap us basically walking down the street all right Stanley, that was significant Significant to what? My, I'm, not, I'm not wading into the fray here. Hi, everybody. My name is Alyssa Fuchs. Um, I'm your legal correspondent. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Alyssa Fuchs, and that's with an I, or on Twitter at Alyssa Fuchs, I-L-Y-S-S-A-F-U-C-H-S. Or you can find the fan page, which is politically preposterous. Give us some comments there, and we'll try and mention them on air. Yes, yes. So, guys, we have a great show lined up. Uh, we're going to be talking, we're going to start the show talking about Chirac, right? I, I actually saw the movie with Stanley last week, last Sunday. Pray and my city. Um, it was a good, it was a good, well. I, I didn't go. We'll talk about it, but we're going to talk about that movie in light of what's going on in Chicago. Those real issues um, that are plaguing uh, the gang violence, the gun violence. You know, it's a part two of our uh, part, well, two-part segment on Chicago that we did last, starting last week. And if you missed last week and you want to check out part one, just don't forget we're on iTunes podcast um, and a whole bunch of other places that I can't remember <laughs> right now, but Stanley probably knows. So, yeah, if you want to listen to one of our shows, you can go to scatterradio.com. Let your voice be heard shows are there as well. You can go to our website, lyvbh.com, or you can subscribe to the podcast at LYVBH Radio on iTunes or on Stitcher and listen to all of our former episodes. Episodes. We have over 300 episodes available right now for streaming for free. Right. Thank you for that, guys. So we'll continue that um, series. And then later on in the show, we'll be talking about the Paris Agreement. I mean, 
it talk about timeliness. Today is like 65 degrees in New York City. And like while everyone's enjoying the weather, I just keep thinking about the rising sea levels and climate change. And I was talking to my younger sister um, last night and I was just like, yeah, so we're going to be underwater soon. And she's like, when? I was like, oh, no, not that soon. But it's coming. It's what is coming. Wrong with you? I didn't mean to. I, didn't, I was speaking in a very like apocalyptic type of way and I didn't realize I was scaring her. Well, so why would you not realize you would scare someone speaking I, in an apocalyptic I didn't. I didn't I don't. I was just in a, my moment. I was in my moment. It's too hot outside. I, I was going to say something, but I think I'm going to keep it to myself. Tell me on the break. Yeah. So I don't want to. I don't want to offend you or anybody else about, but, about but, the apocalypse coming. Right. Well, we'll talk about. We're we're going to talk about the real issues. We're going to talk about climate change and what's actually been going on between all world leaders in Paris for the last two weeks. They came up with this historic agreement to finally combat climate change we're going to be working together so that's really really big news and we're going to break that down we have a great guest coming on later on in the show from paris from paris i don't know if he's yeah actually i think he's Paris. still in pa- patty right he's still in patty he's been covering this issue on the ground and then later Alyssa has the quickie and she's going to be talking about affirmative action because the scotus the supreme court might just overturn affirmative action when it comes to college admissions. So that's a, that's some big news. And that have a lot of political implications. You mean admissions? Admissions. What did I say? Emissions. Oh, good. I'm thinking of <laughs> climate change. Oh. I'm thinking of carbon emissions. I'm telling you guys. Carbon it's emissions? Too high. Selena, carbon. Stop it. Carbon. <laughs> it's just it's too high. Carbon out. emissions. It's, that's what I College said. admissions. But it's close. Guys, guys <laughs> it's hot outside. Bear with me. I'm sorry. My fault, guys. So, again, we have a great show lined up. And if you want to let your voice be heard, you can call us up at 212-650-6903. just in case you could not hear Stanley. Or the you last can four numbers. be heard. Underscore. Radio. I don't think anyone can understand when Radio. you talk like that, Stanley. Honestly. You're not Barry White, Stanley. All right. You know what? You just guys are going to stop it. trying to kill my dreams. I will be great. Just say it in a regular voice, just in case they didn't get that. It's be heard. Underscore. Radio. Thank you. You're and, welcome. And then you got like the list. whitest voice ever. <laughs> that's like that's, radio. That's his Chet voice. That's his Chet voice. Chet. All right, you guys will not talk bad about Chet Fritz, okay? He was a good man. Right. Whatever, guys. So, yeah. And also, guys, you should definitely use the hashtag, uh, hashtag be heard. And you should follow me on Snapchat now because I'm going to start snapping us on the commercial breaks. Unfortunately. That's the fun I'm thing. I'm Stanley right. <laughs> yep. Just only on Sundays. This is significantly useless. All right, guys, we're going on a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. Jump in, jump in, jump in. Them boys up to something. They just spent like two or three weeks out the country. Them boys up to something. They just not just bluffing. You don't have to call. I hear my dance like usher. I just found my tempo like on DJ Mustard. I hit that Janobi with my left hand all like, woo. Lobster and Celine for all my babies that I miss. Chicken finger, french fry for them hoes that want to dish. Jump in, jump in, jump in, them boys up to something. Hey, this is DJ Justice from the Flavor Zone, classic soul and R&B. like to welcome you and yours to every other Saturday right here from 8 p.m. to 12 midnight for some of the hottest songs in R&B and classic soul. Let's cry a little, laugh a little, sing a little. Every other Saturday from 8 p.m. to 12 midnight right here at WACR 90.3 FM, New York, the voice of Harlem, Flavor Zone, classic soul and R&B. DJ Justice, let's Let's go.
Rico, 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 Rico. Police eyes, every day. People dying, every day. Mama's crying, every day. Father's trying, every day. Trying to get my head straight. It's the city of Chirac, man. Get your bed made. See death around the corner. Boy, I dodge him like an old. I don't talk if I don't know. Plot is on Boy, I lost homies. Some died, some crossed on me. I love the that's down for me. The ones that send shots on me. Yeah, and if the bills late, they rob me just to get the bills paid. Working for a payout. Every day looking for a way out. Get released from jail and try to stay out. Pray to God, see how I play out. But maybe God trying to test me. This life that I'm living so stressful. In one second, I'ma let loose and everybody in here gon' catch it. Cause right now I can't take it. Lord, when I'm gon' make it. Cause it's Chirac in my city laws. I can't fall victim to Satan. Please pray for my city. WHCR 90.3 FM. Please pray for my city. Too much hate in my city. And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR. Too much Snapchat in my city. 90.3 FM. The voice of Harlem. That's what I was waiting for. Um, so we just played Chirac. Shout out to Stanley. In my city. Yes, that was um, from the movie Chirac. No clean water in my city. Yes, Spike Lee's new joint. Thank you for the uh, made up ad lib, Stanley. So as I mentioned before the break, we are continuing our two part series talking about Chicago, specifically the south side of Chicago, where there is rampant gang violence, criminal activity, gun violence. The homicide rate is just through the roof. There's actually more homicides in uh, Chicago than in Iraq when it came to, um, you know, American forces going overseas to fight. So we had more people, more Americans dying in Chicago, hence the name Chirac. So this is a really big, crucial issue, and it's something that's been going on for years, um, um, years, years. It's, this is built up, but it seems like just in the last few years, especially um, 2014 and now 2015, where we have this movie, a lot of focus has been on Chicago. And I always wondered, right, like, it's always been here. Like, why is Chicago just now coming out of the sh- shadows? Like, this has been here like this for a while. So we have a... Um, a great guest on the line who is in Chicago, who fights on the ground in Chicago, and I'll introduce in just a few more moments. I wanted to start off talking about Chirac the movie. As I mentioned, we did get a chance. Well, Stanley and I had a chance to see the movie. Um, we won't have any spoilers. At least I'll try not to. Alyssa, just give me a glare if I say something that's like about to spoil the end of the movie. People get shot. All right, basically. I, mean, basically. I, I know the plot of the movie. I've seen the right. trailer. Right. So the plot of the movie is where you have uh, Chicago women withholding sex from men until the gang and gun violence stops. And it's actually a um, new version of an ancient Greek play that came out around 400 B.C. So that is really, really ancient. It's a... um. Excuse me. And so basically what the women are doing, um, they're, they're telling the men, they're telling their boyfriends, we will not have sex with you. And then they just have like this they just go in like this big I like parade and you know it's it's they get a lot of attention about you know this movement and this and this this way that they're um portraying their activism however a lot of people in Chicago and especially like on black twitter just went off as soon as the trailer came out um specifically Chance the rapper mm-hmm. who is from Chicago he said you know what 
this he's, he called the movie exploitive and problematic. He said we should not be making a mockery or any type of comedy with this issue no one should be laughing and the movie is a comedy we laughed we were in the theater laughing at a number of points and the movie is very far-fetched and absurd in my opinion so that's why it gets those laughs and you know it, it's not like a fruitville station i'll tell you that it's not like um oh uh, what's the slave movie that came out not well, Django. 12, years, 12 a years a slave thank you it's not one of those where it's like an accurate portrayal necessarily so like you, you get the laughs and you get you know well, that was my take. Stanley, what were you thinking while you were watching the movie? Well, I think everybody wants to see movies of black people getting beat up and crying over dead mm. bodies and going to funerals and praying and singing gospel songs. And Chirac was nothing like that. And I think anyone who thinks that Chirac is a poor movie was ready to be offended or like was ready to like be mad and watch black people get shot. And what it really was, was it was a satire. And mm. a lot of times, that's how you talked about or like discussed important issues. We watch satire every week on Saturday Night Live where they use comedy to point out the ridiculousness of what's going on in the real world. And Chirac did that. But if you were watching, you also noticed they mentioned that n that neighborhood doesn't have a trauma center. They also mentioned the unemployment rate. Right. They also pointed out the militarization of the police. They also pointed out that like there were so many abandoned buildings that they pointed out how the how the community had been redlined. They like they lampooned Rahm Emanuel. But people were so ready to be mad and like upset about like you know the way the movie was portrayed that they didn't pay attention to these things. But this is what happens. Shakespeare was known for using satire to talk about issues. So what Spike Lee did with a Shakespearean play, I think it was originally, was use satire to talk about a serious issue. And they're saying that he's like he's like disgracing it or whatever it is. But like people are talking about Chirac because of this movie. You know, I didn't see the movie, so I can't speak on the movie directly. I didn't go with Selena and Stanley the other night. Um, but, you know, uh, here's my thing. Without having seen the movie, and I'm curious to hear your perspective on this and maybe in the guests as well, is that, you know, people talk about black-on-black black cr black black crime. And it it's a myth as far as I'm concerned, as far as the data is concerned. Yeah. Um, I mean, the rate of black-on-black -black murder is about 92%. Mm -hmm. The weight, the rate of white-on-white -white murder is about 89 to 90 percent. So climbing. we're literally talking about a three percent difference mm -hmm. when we're talking about quote unquote black on black crime. And actually, I was just looking at some data. According to FBI homicide data, African-Americans commit more homicides than other racial groups. However, um, the percentage when you compare it to the national population of mm -hmm. black people living in the country, which is over 40 million people, you find that the vast majority of black people do not commit any crime. So my concern is, and maybe you'll you can speak about this, is that this movie in some ways by I'm not saying we should ignore the problem but does you think it perpetuates the myth no no I think what it does Why? is puts, it puts a spotlight on some real problems that we have. People are killing each other in Chicago and in Philadelphia, like they mentioned, and in Milwaukee and in New, and York, in New York and Brooklyn. Yeah, people are killing each other, and there's a serious problem. But why is that? Why like why are they killing each other? It's not as simple as just being in a gang, and that's what the movie touches on. If like you're not so busy being outraged, right? No, great points, Alyssa Stanley, and I think that that segues into what we are going to talk about again today, which is the larger issues. And I think like you know, as Stanley said, it delivers the message, and it has us talking about Chicago. But there are problematic parts of that movie that we will address a little later on, uh, specifically the women's role. I mean, there's so many women on the ground in Chicago who are you know 
using their minds and strategy and, you know, their degrees and have dedicated their lives to stopping violence rather than just saying, well, you can't have sex with me. It kind of almost is a little dismissive, I think. And I know that a lot of feminists felt that way. But, but like, it isn't yeah. like this made up. This actually happened somewhere right, else. Right, right, right. It's a satire. So what's, I don't understand, like, why does everything have to be like a Shaka Zulu movie? <laughs> I mean, I get it. It is a different type of movie, but, you know, it, it was... For so much sadness to be going on in Chicago, it did not convey that as much. It's like a lot of people were dancing around and like we were all like, Oh, I wanna see them dance. Like I don't know. It's just I think that it, it depends on it, de- it depends on it depends on your perspective. I don't yeah. know. What bothers me the most is that I find that it's sort of it, it you know, obviously you answered my question about the perpetuation of the myth, but I find that it, it sort of in some ways ignores the fact that we have inst- the institutionalized racism racism aspect of just crime and policing in general and the socioeconomic factors like rather than cultural identities it like about that. you know it but right. did, does it focus i mean it does it talks about that but is the focus on that this is a structural problem or that this is like yeah. a black problem it's a structural problem right it is all right guys so on that note i do want to invite Tio Hardeman into the conversation we had him on last week again he is the executive director for violent Interrupters. He has dedicated his life and career to community organizing for peace and social change. Um, and he's also, he joined the award-winning um, public health model. It's called Cease Fire. He's also known as Mr. Cease Fire. And he is calling in all the way from Chicago, a.k.a. Chirac. Uh, good morning, T.O. Thank you for joining us again. Yeah, I'm glad to be on the show once again, for sure. Thank you, thank you. We're glad to have you back. We started the discussion just talking about Chirac, uh, the movie. I know that you saw the movie too. And since you are someone who's on the ground and on the ground in Chicago, and you've dedicated your life to, you know, coming, finding out what's behind the gang violence and the gun violence in Chicago and what the solutions are. Uh, what would you say about the film? Did it do a good job in portraying or, you know, giving an accurate portrayal of what's going on and how to fight these problems? Yeah, first of all, in the words of Samuel L. Jackson, welcome to Chirac, okay? <laughs> this is what's happening. <clears throat> the movie was a, a good movie as it relates to the fact that, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry about that, Chicago definitely needed, sometimes you have to laugh to stop from from crying, okay? Chicago's been played with a lot of violence, you know, for decades, so there's nothing new here. But the movie was okay, because, you know, me being a man, I love women, and the thing is, if my woman or wife was to tell me that, look here, she's going to boycott me far as she's not, we're not going to have no type of sexual encounters, no type of relationship, that might change some people, but that's the movie, okay? I just want to make that clear. Now, on the streets of Chicago, it may not play out that way. However, some of the characters in the movie, Nick Cannon playing Chirac and uh, Wesley Snipes, it was good to see Spike Lee actually uh, hire a lot of African-American actors and, you know, some Caucasian actors, even the guy John Cusack that played Mike Corrigan, and Corrigan, whatever they call him, in the movie. That was an accurate uh, portrayal of Father Flager, a guy that's out there. He happens to be a Caucasian priest or father, you know, on the south side of Chicago, and he stands up against the black-on-black violence all the time. Most of the major funerals of the young people, uh, Father Flager, the guy that over oversees those uh, funerals. So, yeah, it played, a, it, the movie was okay. A little bit, of, you know, like a little bit of laughter is good, is good for everybody. But now on the flip side, laughter, when it comes down to the violence, uh, you can't go too far with the laughter because there's nothing really funny 
about people being killed in Chicago. Uh, over the last three weeks, we had um, a nine-year-old uh, executed, Tyshawn Lee, in the alley because the guys were mad at his father. They couldn't catch the father, so they killed the son. So you cannot laugh about that kind of stuff. But I applaud Spike Lee. I'm not knocking the concept. I think it was in, very important because what happens, I heard you all talking earlier, Chance the Rapper stated that the movie was uh, degrading women or whatever the case, exploiting people. But Hollywood has been exploiting the black community for years. And Hollywood is Hollywood. I want to make that clear. But uh, Chance the Rapper is the son of Mr. Bennett. He's the deputy mayor under Rahm Emanuel in Chicago. So uh, the mayor wasn't in favor of the movie at all. So you have problems there. So that might be a little bit coming from the mayor's office, you know, through uh, Chance the Rapper, okay? Thank you so much for that. Again, guys, if you're just tuning in, we have on the line with us Tio Hardiman. He is the executive director for Violent Interrupters. He, when we're talking about Chirac, the movie, and also the real issues plaguing Chicago, Southside, which has been nicknamed Chirac for a long time. And, you know, Tia, you made so many good points when it came to the movie because it was very controversial and very provocative, and a lot of people didn't take too well to it, uh, specifically the way that Spike Lee chose to portray these issues. Um, one thing that I wanted to talk about was how this violence has been building up for years in Chicago, and it's sort of some somehow got lost in the shadows. Why do you think uh, people are just now starting to pay attention to what's going on in the South Side? And how do, you, how do we even get to this point? Well, the same way you see all the police brutality and the excessive force cases going on across America, people are paying attention now because a lot of the killings are being like, uh, pretty much social media is, is pushing you know, pretty good, and you got it all over the place now. That's why they're paying attention to it, and there's, there appears to be no, no end in sight to the violence. So a lot of people are just trying to wonder what's going on. Why, uh, see, put it like this, in Chicago, 85% of the homicides that occur in Chicago occur in the African-American community, more so black and black you know, killings. And we have to focus on trying to resolve the issue with our people because the violence is all over the place. It's not always gang-related. Some of these killings are as simple as a guy that looked at you the wrong way, or I don't like the way this guy looks. He's not from over here. We had a young man that was killed that was visiting his family from out of town, <clears throat> and he asked a few guys a few questions on, on the block. How do you get to this address? And they shot and killed him because he wasn't even from the area. So we have more of a self-hatred problem with some of our people, not all of our people. I want to make that clear. But we have a self-hatred issue that leads to killings in Chicago. And, I, and that people need to understand that because these young guys are pretty much lost out there. They're not fighting to take over blocks. They're not fighting to control <clears throat> the drug trade altogether. They're fighting because it's, it's like it's been passed down from generation to generation. It's learned behavior. Wow. Okay? No, thank you so much. Again, guys, we have on the line with us Tio Hardiman. If you have a question or a comment about Chirac, the movie, or Chicago, the number is 212-650-6903. And, you know, you just made some great points about self-hatred. I mean, if, is that at the root of what's going on with this gang violence and gun violence? And I know Stanley wants to jump in. It's almost like a war zone, and when you say, like, you know, it's not just a gang violence, and it's just somebody looked at somebody the wrong way, and it brought me back to growing up in East New York and Brownsville, where if you were walking down the street and you made eye contact with somebody for too long, you would have to fight. Or some t I remember one time I was walking with a friend, and we are having a conversation, and, like, we made eye contact with somebody, and he pulled out his gun on us. Right. Because, like, he, and it's, it's literally a war, and, like, it's kill or be killed, and everyone's nervous, so you, you can get shot at any minute. T.O., can you speak to that? Oh, yeah, that's why I'm glad the brother brought that up. Let me just go back. When I was like 16, 17, I grew up in the Hearing Hunter Projects on the west side of Chicago. And I would actually look in the mirror and try to 
premeditate how I would step down on the front porch of the projects because it was a very violent community. So I would have to walk a certain way. I'd have to look a certain way. I'd just, you know, kind of showcase myself that I wasn't no, you know, coward type of guy that I would fight. And so, you know, a lot of young guys today, their mindset is kill or be killed. I'd rather get caught with a gun than get caught without a gun because the gun is the only thing that's going to neutralize and get people off of me. And then you got the predator type of guys that will just shoot because the fact is it's a cold of the streets. So you're right, my brother. That's what happens when people look at you. I know a young guy that lost his life, a sincere story. Uh, there, uh, he was graduating from high school, and uh, some people were having a water balloon fight, and the water got on her dress. Somebody... They thought somebody hit her with a water balloon, and they killed the guy. They thought they hit her with the water balloon, but they found out later that the air conditioner was leaking, and the, air, the water got on her dress from the air conditioner she was standing in front of. Okay? So that goes to show you that the killings are all over the place. But the only solution, and I want to make this clear, is unity within the African-American community. And I know that sounds kind of corny, but if African-American people do not unify, we're going to continue to have a lot of killings because mm. the young people are looking for some type of leadership, and they're not getting it because they're raising themselves in a lot of these situations. Right. Thank you again for that, T.O. We have on the line with us Patricia Smith. She's calling in from the south side of Chicago, and she wants to let her voice be heard. Hi, Patricia. Yes. I mean, Oh, good afternoon. Let's get something tr- straight. I'm right now presently living in Harlem. I left Chicago in 86, but I go back every year because I couldn't stand the violence. Let's put that straight. And the violence has been there since Al Capone days, understand? And the spirit that permeates the south side of what Al Capone left has never left us, you understand? The killings among each other and the gangster life. And I want to say something. In 1967, my brothers, my little brothers, was 11 and 12 years old, they were drafted into the Blackstone Rangers. They had no choice or be killed. I wanted something done then. Do you understand? And if you say something, you get your door kicked down. Mm. Now, thankfully, my brothers and we being from 1929, we were well respected on the south side of Chicago. I lived it. I was amongst it. I'm afraid to see Chirac because they may have it all wrong. Mm. You understand? Because yes. I lived it. Thank right. you so they don't much. Understand. Right. Now, it only got worse when um, Katrina left, came through, and they brought all these strange uh Lower spirits until the south side. That got that got really scary. Thank you so much, Patricia, for sharing your story. I mean, um, it, it's it's real, and I understand that sentiment for someone who's who's watched the gang violence firsthandedly, and you grew up, and you you know you know what it's like to hear the gunshots. Maybe you lost somebody in you know that war zone that's going on on the south side. Uh, seeing a movie like that could be hard, and I definitely respect that. And you know it, it is real like that. And you know, Tio, I just wanted to get your response because um, what that woman was saying it was real, and a lot of people are, are are looking for you know solutions, and they don't necessarily feel like. You know, maybe this movie is accurately portraying the solutions in the right way. And, and that is the discussion we have to have. I th- oh, you know what? We're going to go to a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation about Chirac right here on Let Your Voice Be Heard.
And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. My name is Selena Hill. I'm here with Stanley Fritz on the PC Ones and Twos and Alyssa Fuchs. She is on my left. We have on the line with us Tio Hardman. He is the executive director for Violent Interrupters, and he is also a dedicated activist on the streets of Chicago. Right before we went on break, we had a Harlem resident who used to live on the south side call in, and she said that she left because of the violence. Tio, my question is, you know, you have a lot of people, uh, you know, black people, people of color leaving Chicago. What, you know, what is your res- what is your response to that? I mean, that woman, she gave a, you know, a very painful and real testimony about what it's like. Um, and I feel like she's just, and like a lot of us, we're looking for solutions. Well, number one, you know, I appreciate the young lady's comment because she told the truth. There was a time when you lived on the south side, or the, see, on the west side you have mainly vice lords. South, the east side, you had the Blackstones. Like the, the greater south side, you had the Gangster Disciples and the Black Disciples. I'm talking about back when she was talking about. And there was a time when you were sitting on your porch as a young man, the guys would force you to join the gangs. But that wasn't the case for everybody. Some people did good that came from the community, but a lot of people got caught up. Back then, uh, the gangs were building empires, you know, back in that day. Now, fast track to 2015, you have cliques. You have a lot of guys that are out here just trying to control, like, say, one block or two or three blocks. Some of them are just beefing, you know, like with this, uh, you know, the Chief Keith stuff, the little right. Dirk stuff that's going on. And that's a little bit of the violence. Not a, that's not major. But the reality is that people are leaving Chicago because it is too violent in some areas. And no one wants their 19-year-old. We had a 19-year-old that was killed last night in Chicago driving his car on the west side of Chicago. And he was shot and killed, tried to drive himself to the hospital, but he died, you know, en route. So I understand the young lady, but Chicago is not as bad for people like myself and people that have been living here all our lives because we understand the mindset of these young people. And one thing I have to say, I appreciate this, the young guys have a lot of respect for me. I'm talking about guys 14 years old all the way to, like, you know, whatever, 35. You know, I can go out, I can call them guys, they listen to me and do whatever I ask them to do. So we have to stay connected to the youth. That's, that's one way we can help stop some of the violence. And let me say this quickly. My staff so far this year, it's not a big number, but we've mediated 40 conflicts that could have turned deadly where we saved a life on the front end. I'm talking about where people wanted to kill one another, and we stepped in and stopped it. Wow. Um, you know, that is so admirable, and I think we definitely need more of that. Um, I wanted to just go back to the Chirac movie because one of the parts that I felt resonated with me most was when a certain character gave this monologue about the NRA and the role that the NRA and um, our gun culture in America is having in fueling gun violence in Chicago. And I know Alyssa wanted to speak on that and then ask the question. Yeah, no, I did. And we actually spoke at length about guns in the last show. And we've had multiple shows where we've spoken about guns generally in America. But um, one of those One of the points that has come up in that conversation, at least with respect to New York, is this idea of the iron pipeline, is that there are lax gun laws in southern states that are connected to New York through I-95, which is the route that is used to traffic the most amount of illegal guns that are sold legally in other states and then trafficked up to New York and end up uh, in the hands of 
you know, different people that shouldn't have them here in New York City. And I was wondering what the role of uh, others, uh, obviously, Illinois is not not connected to I-95, but there are other states that surround Illinois that have lax gun laws, like, for example, Indiana. So I'm curious to know what the role uh, lax gun laws in other states and just the lack of federal regulations in certain areas lead to guns getting on the streets on the south side of Chicago. Good, good, good uh, question. Let me say this to you. Speaking on behalf of T.O. Hardiman, <clears throat> I'd like to say that the gun laws are not the problem. A lot of people do not want to hear this. There's no data to back up the fact that legal gun owners are part of the problem, especially in cities like Chicago. The problem we have is too many illegal guns being uh, placed in the hands of these young guys out here. There are stories, one story after another, about freight trains that are mysteriously uh, – Stopping in the African-American community where they have semi-automatic weapons on the freight trains. And you can look this information up and you can find, it, find this information out to be uh, true. And the guys get the guns off the freight trains. They sell them in the community. We have a lot of guys that travel from state to state. They call them uh, straw purchasers. They go buy guns from these gun shows and they bring the guns and they arm these young men in the community. So that's a problem there, the illegal guns. See, the NRA and the, and the lax gun laws do not become a major problem until you have a massacre somewhere like, you know, what you just had in California, somewhere like in other, like Colorado. And I love everybody. I don't want to see nobody lose their life. But the gun laws are not really the problem. I understand the good work that was done in New York. If you get caught with a gun, it's a mandatory minimum sentence, and that's fine. I've had the, uh, the pleasure to travel to the U.K. where they don't have guns. They have night crimes, but their homicide rate is one of the lowest homicide rates in the world. So we have to learn how to change the mindset of young men and women so they won't feel it's okay to kill one another just because they get into a petty conflict because it's not necessarily the gun, it's the thinking. But don't get me wrong, if they didn't have the gun, because the gun is a weapon of convenience. And I understand that people are mad about gun laws, but that's a tough question there, okay? That's my response to you. But you know, actually have a follow up to that. You mentioned something about New York, right? Like, oh, New York has the strict gun laws. Um, do you think actually that actually contributes to more of the problem? I'm going to play this out for a second. You live in a low income community. Let's say you're in New York. You get caught with a gun that you're carrying to protect yourself. Now you're facing a charge. You plead guilty to something. You go to jail. You get out of jail. You now have you can't get a job. I mean, I know that's something we're trying to work on in New York, but now you can't get a job uh, because you have a conviction on your record. And so that leads you back out onto the street because you have to find a way to feed yourself and leads you back into the cycle of violence. Do we actually think that that, the stricter gun laws in some ways uh, are working against trying to solve some of these issues? Well, that's why I just mentioned I don't think it's really the gun laws what's going on. Once a person has a a, a conviction on his record, it's hard to bounce back. But a lot of people have bounced back from being convicted of crimes. I want to make that clear as well. This is the thing. New York City, they actually had an increase in homicides, I think, around six, seven months ago in New York, uh, even though they had uh, strict gun laws. So the gun, see, let's go back to Chicago for a minute. Young guys on the street of Chicago are not thinking about a strict gun law when they're about to kill somebody. Right. They're not thinking about that at all. A lot of people are sitting in the penitentiary right now wishing they could... Uh, turn back the hands of time because 80% of these guys that kill another person, they probably say in their head, put it like this, let me just make, say this. I've been around some guys that, are con- that were convicted of murder, gun violence, and they said if they could not get access to the gun, they probably would not have committed to murder. So you've got to look at it both ways. 
Okay, you have to look at it from uh, that lens as well. But gun laws are not going to change the condition and the, and the mindset of people that want to commit violence. Yeah, yeah absolutely right, you And that's what I want to talk about, some of these underlying mm-hmm. factors, because like you said, it's a mentality. It's almost a sickness and an illness that's going on from generation to generation in so many low-income communities where young people, especially young boys, are being taught this. Like, I've been at children's birthday parties where they taught they were teaching the younger members the gang signs and you know it's, it's almost like a survival tactic in one way because you need to know you know the streets you need to know what's going on and how to recognize what's going on um and how to how to blend in almost but the thing is it is generational generation and i want to talk about you know, what is underlying this i mean is it is it jobs lack of um affordable housing is it poverty is it lack of education or is it just a combination of all of these factors yeah it's a combination of everything. Believe it or not, I was kind of up late last night, and I was watching Bounce TV. They showed the movie Super from the ancient past, and they had a record in there called I'm Your Pusher Man. And I just had to analyze the movie again, even though it's been years you know, since I watched that movie. But this guy, they were pushing, I'm your pusher man. I'm your mother, I'm your father, I'm that brother in the alley. You want some coke, you know, some weed? See, all these type of, type of mindsets and characters out here, and, and most young guys feel... Just like the rap song that came out of Chirac, I forget who the artist was. You guys played it before we uh, got on, before we got uh, started the interview here, and they were talking about I want to make it out the hood, and you know I got to get out the hood. Everybody wants to get out the hood, and how they get out the hood, it doesn't matter as long as they get out the hood. So if I got to put you down and shoot you, if I got to sell some dope or some marijuana for a little while to get out the hood, that's the mindset. Mm-hmm. And once you commit to the dope game, gunplay is 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 right around the corner. That's just a way of life out there. So uh, the rap game, for example, you got Chief Keef, Lil Durk, and some of the Chicago rappers rapping now some gangster rap. But think about it. You never really had no gangster raps out of Chicago. And like the young lady that called in, she said that Al Capone, the legacy of Al Capone remains in Chicago. Chicago is one of the first gangster cities in the whole United States. I know people talk about L.A., but most of the major gangs started here in Chicago. And it's been passed down from one generation to the other. That's your issue. That's the underlying issue. But, yeah, poverty plays a role. The lack of good education plays a role. The lack of resources and all that plays a role. So when people bring the big dope package in the hood, yeah, a lot of guys are going to take, take advantage of it because that's the way to make some easy money so they think. Um, we have on the line with us Miss Deborah, who wants to let her voice be heard again. We're talking to Tia Hardiman, um, and we're talking about Chirac, the movie, and also the, the gun violence going on in Chicago. Miss Deborah? Hi. Um, hi, everybody. Hi, Mr. Hardiman. I just right. wanted to ask you, do you think that people, excuse me, I have my radio, I have to turn it down. Um, these guys or women who, who kill these people, I know that they get the guns, the guns are illegal. But, like, who are these people? You know, like, have you all ever really, like, done homework to find out who these people are? You know, like, let's say, for instance, you had cars, right? And all of a sudden, everybody's car started to disappear. You'd go and look for those people to find out who stole your car. Are they being paid to literally wipe their own people out? Because it just doesn't seem, you know, I mean, I, I get that some people, you know, don't have it wrapped too tight. But then it's, it just keeps going on and on and on and on. And I mean, like, are we really that vicious? Tio, can you answer that? Here out. 
there has been some statements out in, out in the public where people feel they're being paid to kill one another, but you have to look at it like this. When people start working with, see, the cartel, those are the people bringing the drugs in the community as far as the high volume of drugs. The brother that meets with the cartel to bring the drugs into the black community, those guys are sellouts in the community. So you can't say they're being paid because they're pushing dope, they're pushing death, and they're pushing guns. So I believe so in some cases, but it's a whole lot of factors that go into the violence. you got young men that want to make a name for themselves. There was a book written by a professor out of uh, uh, Ohio State University. Her name is Deanna Wilkerson. Um, I forget the name of the book right now, and I'm sorry about that, but she, she wrote a book. You can look her up. She interviewed around 300 young men that were convicted of gun violence. And a lot of them, the great percentage of the young men said they were just trying to make a name for themselves. That's the data that's out there on that, okay? Right. And I actually, I wanted to add to that. I mean, on top of making a name for themselves, I, I know, Selena, you mentioned poverty. We mentioned it as one of the factors. And in some cases, it's a, it's literally a struggle to survive. I mean, obviously on the streets, but also a struggle to survive, to feed yourself, to put it clothes on your back and a roof over your head. So, so I feel like in some situations, people end up in this cycle, one, having to do with the culture, but also, two, having to do with because they, they have no other options. So they see this like you said they'll do whatever it takes to try and get out of this situation but actually i wanted to ask you a follow-up question to something you just mentioned you talked a lot about uh the role that drugs play um a lot of people have said that the u.s's war on drugs has been a huge failure um that it's ineffective that it has not stopped the flow of drugs and it has actually led to more violence so i'm curious to know what you perceive um of the role or what role do you think that the u.s's quote unquote war on drugs or failed war on drugs is playing in chicago with the gang violence and is there something that, you know, if, if, for example, the government was to stop this quote unquote war on drugs, do you think that would actually make things worse in Chicago or would that help in some ways to alleviate the situation? Yeah, the failed war on drugs is, is a major problem here across the United States because the war on drugs really turned out, and, which led to the uh, prison industrial complex. A lot of people were just, uh, you know, shipped to these penitentiaries because there was no real strategy or a plan to really stop the drugs from crossing the border. See, if all the focus went on addressing the drugs once they came into America. You know, you all out of New York, you had the guy down there, you know, Frank Lucas, you had the guy, Nicky Barnes, you know, people, the legendary drug dealers. This, the whole thing is a setup. The whole drug trade is a setup in the beginning. And let me explain. You got people that were involved in the CIA. This is all quoted information that I'm using. There was a movie filmed on the Black Panther Party where some members of the CIA were quoted in the movie stating that, get them black folks, the, the drugs, and they'll start killing each other in record numbers. All right? That's in that movie, and it's in print out there. So the reality is this here. It's a setup. The United States government, they have to come, our people, the leaders have to come out of denial and admit the fact that the drugs are pushing the black community for a diabolical purpose. That doesn't mean that people had to take the drugs, but that's what happened. So if you don't deal with the truth about the drug game, you're not going to never, you know, solve that issue. Drug addiction, which, drug addiction which, which we all know is a major problem across America, not just the black community, the white community, and the Hispanic community, and some, of the, some people in the Asian community, but the drug war is a big problem, okay? It is. Um, T.O., unfortunately, we're going to have to bring this conversation to a close. Yeah. But before we do, um, can you just tell us, so what are some of the solutions? What can we all do? You know, us here in New York City, people who are listening in Chicago, what, what are some of those measures that we can take? 
Okay, first and foremost, Professor Daniel Wilkerson's book, the, the name of the book is Guns, Violence, and Identity Among African-American and Latino Youth. Uh, as far as solutions, we have to unify block by block and find out what them young brothers really would like to do with their lives and see if we can get them to get out of the drug trade and get out of the mindset that they have to kill one another. That's going to take absolute unity of African-American people. And I'm not saying unifying to take over the system. I'm saying unifying to bring peace in our community. That's the only solution, to be honest with you. And now, and I mentioned this the last time you were here, where we have a really large wave, a really large movement of, of young black activists um, being uh, joining the, the ranks of the Black Lives Matter movement. Do you think that this is sort of rectifying or addressing these issues, or are you talking about something else when you say unifying as a community? The Black Lives Matter movement can definitely is, is part of the solution because the only thing missing the Black Lives Matter movement they need to reconnect or connect with the young brothers involved in the street life. You know, like the gang members. You know, I don't like calling the brothers gang members. They they need to connect with the young brothers on the on the streets. In other words, and once they do that, that's a solution right there. Because right now they're just standing up against police brutality and excessive force, but they have to connect all across the board. And then you have all hands on deck, and you'll definitely have a solution right there. Again, to you, please let our listeners know how they can follow you online get in contact with you your website yeah uh com. that's t-i-o hardeman h-a-r-d-i-m-a-n all my information is on my website you can follow me on facebook twitter and if you need to talk to me it's urgent uh area code 773-391-9072 and i want to thank you all for having me on your show this morning thank you so much thank T.O. You. we always appreciate when you call in we'll definitely be in touch um you know i just wanted to give i know stanley some um, a few seconds of last words and closing stanley saw the movie stanley's lived this movie and he did manage to make it out any you know few last words stanley so selena thinks that because i grew up in east new york and brownsville and was in a gang and did some of this crazy stuff that I might know what is going on in Chicago. And I guess I do have some context behind it. So one of the biggest conflicts I've been having in relation to the Black Lives Matter movement is that sometimes I feel like I can't talk about what's happening in our communities because we want to make sure we're addressing police violence. We want to make sure we're addressing the criminal justice system. But a lot of these communities are war zones, and I cannot deny that. I cannot deny the fact that once I, I got accepted to college, I walked out of Brownsville, Brooklyn, and I never looked back. I was so desperate to get out of there. And we absolutely had to do something about that because it shouldn't be a case of someone like me who I'm not particularly smart or athletic or talented, but I just got lucky and I had caught a couple of breaks and I was able to get out. And maybe someone with so much more potential than I, than I had was not. And a perfect example of that is a friend that I had who he started off going to school with me, but his father was a blood, his mother was a blood, his brothers was all of his brothers were bloods, and everyone in his family was in a gang. There was no way he can get away from it. So when it was time to go put in work, he had to go put in work. And when he went to go put in that work that one last time, he got bodied. Or as in English, from he, he was killed. And that's not because he wanted to live that life. That's not necessarily because his family was just so in love with gang, gang life and murder and drugs. It's because if they felt like there was no other way out, why is that? And why are we not giving them any other ways out? We have to give them other ways out. Yeah, absolutely right, Stanley. And I think that a lot of this draws in a lack of hope. And I, I commend T.O. and all the other activists on the ground who were doing things. And I think that we can all take this from, you know, a sort of perspective. Like, I know, like, with me, with my church, we talk about going outside in the streets and talking to people who are addicted to crack, talking to people who are, you know, selling themselves for money, et cetera, et cetera. We can't just live in this, like, protective wall. A lot of us have a lot of privileges and are blessed not to directly live in those war zones or to or to make it out but it's us it's up to us the ones that know better to try to help the others 
to do better. Like Stanley's a perfect example of how, you know, when you make it out, don't leave. Don't think, don't just, you know, think about yourself and, you know, just making more money. I think that we need to have a a more sympathetic approach to it and be able to go back to these communities, speak to the children and make sure we reach them before the gangs do or before a gunshot does, before a bullet does. I mean, it's hard, but you know what? We're going to continue to um, address this issue and make sure that we take some action on this issue. And that's what's needed. And that's what's missing right now. Um, On that note, we do have to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll be talking about some of our favorite stories in the news roundup. You used to call me on my cell phone Late night when you need my love Call me on my cell phone Used to call me on my cell phone. Hey guys, we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. And if you are just tuning in, Selena was talking about her favorite Bay Chief Keith and how she wants to marry him. No. And also, we were talking about the violence in Chicago and also about the movie Chirac. If you have not seen it, Selena wasn't a fan, Marilyn wasn't a fan. A lot of people I know weren't fans. I was a fan. Go check it out. Lisa? Oh no! Actually, I you know I I uh, I didn't make a final comment because I felt like I had said everything I needed to say. But I I'll actually use something that I was thinking of once we went to break as a segue into the news story that I want to bring up, which is you know yes we can get in the community and interrupt violence and this and that and the third and we have to focus on that but we also have to focus on the institutional problems which I know that Black Lives Matter is doing a, a job of and is getting some blowback because they're not focusing on the inner community problem so much as they're focusing on the institutional problem and to me it's it's got to be twofold yeah. but you can't fault one movement for focusing on one thing you know like you got to have sort of almost two movements yeah because this was set up to address x and if you want to address y that's that's related but yeah. it's separate and so maybe the people addressing x can also address y yeah. um but you you can't say it's this or it's this because it's not it's addressing both and with that being said that brings me into my news story i don't know if you heard in Oklahoma, there was a police officer who preyed on women of color who he thought would not report him. And basically what he would do is if he caught them with a small amount of drugs or with something else, he would basically say, oh, well, you know, perform a sex act on me and I won't arrest you or, you know, like something along those lines. And finally, and I I don't want to say he picked the wrong person because all these people were the wrong person. He shouldn't have been doing this to any of these women. Mm -hmm. Um, But he picked a woman who actually had no criminal record Mm -hmm. ever that was not afraid to speak out who finally stepped up and reported him and when she did all these other women who were afraid to speak out because they felt because of their criminal records they were going to be discredited and people aren't going to take them seriously they stepped up too and he got convicted of something like 16 counts of or 36 counts of sexual misconduct he is looking at over 200 years it's in got, prison. Got it. um, no, he hasn't been sentenced yet. That yeah, was a jury's the... recommendation. Oh, oh. Um, and um, and a lot of these women stepped forward and and got to tell their stories about what happened. And that's you know part of the Black Lives Matter conversation, right? Yeah. These women were not willing to speak up because they came from a vulnerable population and they felt like nobody was going to believe them. So you know, it sucks that he had to mess with the quote unquote wrong woman who because. I wish more of these women were empowered to step up, but like that's why he preyed on certain types of people, yeah. and that's just so messed up. So finally, we get some semblance of justice. One of the in- interesting things about this case is a lot of people were mad because he had an all-white man jury. 
Uh, that was and, another thing I wanted to mention. Yeah, yeah. and so people were like, what the hell? But I just want to backtrack for one second, guys. If you are just tuning in, we just finished our conversation on Chirac, and now we are in a news roundup where we talk about our favorite news stories throughout the week, things that made you laugh, cry, curse, scratch your head, or bang the computer screen when your boss wasn't looking. So that's why we're talking about Daniel Holtz, the officer, who um, has, is being charged on what, over 16 counts of... Convicted. Convicted of over 16 counts of sexual misconduct and assault. And um, Selena? I just wanted to mention, because Stanley brought up an interesting point about the old uh, male white jury, but when it comes to... Um, um, cases of rape and where women are being victimized, um, statistics show that women are more likely to not believe that other woman. So I think that like maybe the um, the the lawyers, the attorneys, um, the plaintiffs that were um, the attorneys that are representing the plaintiff in the case might have specifically wanted to get a jury. It vote was actually the prosecutors. the prosecutors. So the prosecutors were prosecuting. It's weird, right? Because normally you think of prosecutors as people that work with the police, and that's true. The police come to the prosecutors, and you know, but sometimes the police are the criminals, right? Right, and. And so now they're still getting prosecuted by the same prosecutor. We could speak about that at length, um, and, and we have on past shows, so you could definitely check that out when we've called for the need for a special prosecutor and something like that. But the system worked here. Right, um, it did. In, in an, it did. Uh, when the system is otherwise normally broken, as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, we have to say, we have to look at that in a hopeful manner, as Selena would put it. And mm, Definitely. No, definitely with that. Um, I wanted to bring up another news story. And again, guys, if you want to let your voice be heard, the number is 212-650-6903. So I found it interesting that um, a new survey shows that most millionaires, um, most American millionaires, voters are not supporting Donald Trump. Um, and they mostly support Hillary Clinton. And I wanted to and I wanted to point that out because. Number one, uh, most people who are supporting Donald Trump, statistics show, usually are not college educated. Are in the Klan. No, they're not only in the, <laughs> no, I'm not talking about the KKK. <laughs> but the thing is, they, they are statistically known to not have went on to college and to not have the best job. So it's like Donald Trump um, is almost become the new Archie Bunker of 2015. He's saying all of these radical things. He's fear mongering when it comes to immigrants, when it comes to, you know, even refugees, when it comes to the Muslim community, and basically saying, like, we need to take America back again. And the people that that's resonating with, are lower where? class where does he white wanna, people. Where does he want to take the country? Yeah, right, exactly. Take the country back to what? Jim Crow? I think so. <laughs> you know? I think well, so. Slavery? Fun, uh, fun fact, some yeah. people like Donald Trump. Boston, A Boston police union endorsed Donald Trump because he promised to get a death penalty to anyone who killed a cop. Which uh, I just want to tell you, I would never stand up in court because um, the death penalty in certain states is controlled by state law. Mm -hmm. So, you know, here's the thing. Donald Trump has promised a lot of things that would not pass muster under the law. One, um, registration of all people of a religious group would quite clearly violate the First Amendment's mm -hmm. prohibitions against, you know, targeting people for their religious views. Um, although there have been some legal writers that say when it comes to screening people coming into the country, that may be a little different um, because there are the laws with respect to taking religion into account when it comes to immigration. And I don't want to get into a full-fledged conversation about <laughs> that at the moment. Um, but, you know, and the death penalty. Like, you couldn't have a federal law that told New York that doesn't have the death penalty, that they had to have the death penalty for killing a cop because that's under state law. Right. So what he's doing is he's proposing a lot of these things that are what I like to call 
feel good. And I don't mean I think they make me feel good. They make the people who like Donald Trump feel good. But in reality, they would never happen. So he's really blowing a lot of hot air. And in the meantime, when he's blowing a lot of hot air, he's also disparaging um, an entire religious group, uh, namely... Muslims. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so now we've had in the past week, I think it is almost 19 or like 20 hate crimes, including a, a student being thrown off a balcony and killed in Seattle. And right here in New York, in Astoria, there was a Muslim store owner who was attacked um, as a hate crime. So he, just like I talked about with the GOP fanning the flames of abortion clinics last week during my quickie, he's doing the same thing by inciting this violence and Islamophobia yeah. and inciting people to commit hate crimes against, you know, against people that are, you know, nice people who are Americans and also like helping to fuel ISIS. Yeah. Because this is exactly what ISIS wants. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I actually want to shift gears some because even though Donald Trump is very stupid, he's not alone in his stupidity. The party that he represents just passed a bill in Congress to waive all taxes for the the point two percent, like who the point two percent richest people in the world. So like the Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg's, they would not pay any taxes whatsoever on anything. Yeah, I mean, that's that. just ridiculous. I mean, the thing is, this whole trickle down um, theory has never worked and it doesn't work. Like to say that these are the job creators and they'll create more jobs if they're richer just doesn't even make sense. And I don't know who's buying it. And I think that the lower class white America who is supporting Donald Trump, if they would open their eyes and understand what the Republican Party is saying, they would also see that the Repu- that type of bill and a lot of the rhetoric in the Republican Party does not help them. Instead, they are just helping the lobbyists and the people that are putting money in their back pockets. I want to push back on that, Selena. It's, I mean, yes, it's definitely like white folks that support the Republican Party, but black people support the Republican Party, too. Now, I don't like to talk about that because, you know, who, like, who wants to talk about their crazy uncle? But, yes, there are African-Americans, Latino-Americans, and all people who support the Republican Party. And it's not because they're necessarily racist. It's probably because they're stupid. Or no, some of it comes from social conservatism. <laughs> messed up my joke, Alyssa. I was trying to... It's okay. I forgive you this time, Fuchs. No, but it's like, damn it, you pretty much answered it. All right, go ahead. Uh, no, I just I want to get back to the conversation about Islamophobia right. for a second, I, um, because I know we had a lot to say about that, and we thought that our listeners might have a lot to say about that. If you're listening, you want to give us a call. You want to say something about Donald Trump's comments or even his proposed registry of Muslims, which sounds slightly Hitlerish. You can give us a call at 212-650-6903. Selena? I wanted to mention about that. You know, Alyssa made a, a, a lot of remarks about the dozens of um, is, Islam, people of Islamic faith who were attacked in light of what's been going on in Paris. And then you have Donald Trump, who's just using these as talking points to fuel his campaign. And what's been happening is people in the Sikh community as well has uh, have also been attacked. And I think that a lot of people don't understand that this the Sikh community is an entirely different religion, right? It shouldn't even matter. That's the point. It shouldn't even matter because the fact of the matter is, is you shouldn't be attacking people because of their religious views. So, you know, like I, I get what you're saying, which is like people are so stupid that they're attacking Sikhs thinking they're Muslims, but people shouldn't be attacking Muslims to begin with. So there shouldn't even be this confusion because you shouldn't be committing hate crimes against a group of people because, um, a bunch of, 
radicals in the Middle East have committed terrorist attacks. Like, that's just absolutely ridiculous. And, you know, as somebody who is Jewish, to hear things like a registry, a database, people having to wear a patch, um, that just invokes, you know, images of 1930 Hitler's Germany. And a lot of people have made that comparison. And that is just really, really scary. Um, You know, there was a guy, uh, he was, um, I believe, a German uh, writer. Uh, His name was Martin Niemöller, although I may be screwing that up. And he had a famous poem that went something along the lines of, first they came for the communists, but I was not a communist, so... You know, I did not speak out. And then they came for the trade unionists, and I was not a trade unionist, so I didn't speak out. And then they came for the Catholics, but I was not a Catholic, but so I did not speak out. And then they came for the Jews, but I was not a Jew, so I did not speak out. And he ends by saying, and then they came for me. And when they came for me, there was nobody else left to speak for me because nobody had speaking, spoken out. So, you know, as a civilized society, we have to speak out against this type of bigotry, especially when it's being pushed by somebody that's running for office. On that note, I think we have a caller on the line and uh, we're going to go to the caller selena let you um let your voice be heard yes Ephraim. yes did you um your question or comment i would like to why, why are we why are we coming on one character here there's you know why are we not nominating anybody from the community that has any ideas you know we're not nominating nobody we're not you know present nobody we talk about one person it's like a democratic republican thing um that character here, it's like if he talks about immigration, why, if you notice, he's not talking about any immigrants coming from Europe right. to go back to Europe. I mean, you know, I mean, do you have people in this gentrification with baby carriages on, on, on the buses, on the trains? We don't know what they're having in they, their baggage. We don't know what they're getting ready to do. If you're going to talk about you know, immigration is the problem. I mean, you, I mean, why are we only talking about this one character? I mean, oh my gosh. Right. No, Ephraim, I think you, we definitely share that same sentiment when it comes to Donald Trump. He's getting so much attention. And what he's doing with that attention is he's discriminating and just beating up and with these hateful remarks about immigrants, especially immigrants of color. You brought up a great point. He's not necessarily talking about the immigrants that come from Canada and come from Europe. He's talking about the Latino community and the Islamic uh, community and even Islamic Americans. But yeah, I was going to say it's not just immigration, right? I mean, like how in practicality would some of these plans work? What happens if an American citizen flew to another country and then came back to the United States and that American citizen happened to be of Muslim descent? And I take issue with this idea that these people are not American. I mean, have you met some? I mean, you should meet some of my Muslim friends and that were born in Brooklyn and they're just as American as anybody else that I know, you know, and they just have a different religion than you do. So, you know, what? it's really, really disgusting to demonize an entire group of people to claim that they're un-American or different than us when a lot of these people, are, you know, are American. They don't know anything other than being American. They're not different than us in any way other than we share different religions. Well, you know, what? we do have a problematic group of people in this country and we need to stop like like just like dancing around the issue and like that that problematic group of people it just happens to be at this moment the Republican Party and we need to be very clear not every single Republican is as crazy as Donald Trump but just like you can't say there are good cops when they're when they're letting like 
bad cops shoot people and saying nothing. You can't say they're good Republicans when someone like Donald Trump or even Ben Carson or Ted Cruz can walk around pontificating this kind of hatred. What Donald Trump said wasn't really a surprise. People have been saying this behind their closed doors, at their KKK meetings, at their churches, at their pro at their pro life rallies for years. And now what's happening is someone has a platform in the pulpit and those people have gone from fist pumping in their in their houses while hugging their guns to holding their guns outside and fist pumping outside. And the Republican Party, because they are so desperate to be in power and stay in power, will prop them up and pat them on the back and let them do that as long as they vote. And that is the problem. Well, you know, the latest talk is that the Republican National Committee had a secret meeting, which obviously is not so secret, where they're talking about a brokered convention. Now, I don't know if yeah, you know anything about, about conventions and mm-hmm. delegates. I've actually gone to uh, one convention um, in 2008. I was uh, not a delegate, but I worked for as an intern for Governor Howard Dean, and I was at the 2008 no. convention when Barack Obama was nominated. This is Democratic National Convention, and the way it works is that when we vote in the primaries, essentially based on who people vote for in the primaries, those people, then there's delegates, and those delegates, when they get to the floor of the convention, they vote generally the interests of who people have voted for in the primaries. However, Based on convention rules and bylaws and all kinds of stuff within the parties, that's the politics within the politics, which is the politics within the political parties themselves, Um, they can actually direct the delegates to vote for different people that don't necessarily reflect what the people who have voted for in the primary. So now there's being some talk that if Donald Trump wins the primary, that the RNC potentially could have what's called known as a brokered convention, whereas essentially they go behind closed doors and they get a lot of these delegates to vote for a different candidate, which is not the candidate that the people selected. Now, if that actually happens, that is literally going to tear the Republican Party in half because all these people that went out and voted for Donald Trump that expect him to be the nominee and then it turns out to be, say, Jeb Bush or Margo Rubio and they're going to be sitting there going, what the F? And that is going to literally blow the party to bits. And right. to me, hey... You know what? The the Republican Party has already been steered so much. I mean, if you think about it, how much, how divisive Donald Trump's politics are, they're even dividing the Republican Party itself. And I think that that's been going on for a while now. Even when we had Congress, um, when John Boehner was in office, you've seen him trying to be moderate, trying to negotiate with the other side and get things done. But you had the Tea Party, this radical group within the Republican Party with this loud voices, this loud voices that were pretty much drowning out everything else that made sense. There are a lot of sensible Republicans in party, but I feel like their voices are being drowned out by people like Donald Trump. No, you're absolutely right. I know we got to go on break, but I do want to say we need a strong Republican Party. We need a Republican Party where you have smart people bringing up good ideas because too much of anything is not a good thing. You need the balance. It's like me. I'm funny and good looking and charming and Selena is Selena and she balances me. And you need that to make sure that we have we put together a good show. And the Republican Party, we cannot have a situation where we just have Democrats because when it's just one group working and they control everything, then there's no listening. Republicans, no matter what we feel about them, force you to look at things in a different light and it forces you to negotiate. If, but, if only they did that in a better way. Right. No, and I agree. And I think the last thing I'll say about that is we used to be at a place in politics where things were based on compromise, where, you know, the nature of the compromise is, you know, I don't get everything I want and you don't get you everything you want. But at the end of the day, we move forward in a way that benefits everybody um, in a bipartisan manner that takes into account your ideas and mine. And we don't see that happen anymore. And I think Stanley's right. We do need to have a strong Republican Party that's not Sorry, back crazy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's that's just how it goes. Yeah. 
So we're gonna go listen to the weekend. All right, we'll be right back, guys. This is let your voice be heard. I'm sorry. <laughs> WHCR 90.3 FM New York and inadequate housing are issues that plague all of New York City, especially neighborhoods like Harlem. The number of rent-controlled housing units has decreased by 25% over the past 20 years. When the temperature drops below freezing, all tenants should have access to heat and hot water. Palante Harlem is a nonprofit organization that works to educate and organize tenants around housing issues. If you need help with a housing issue, or if you would like to volunteer with Palante Harlem, Visit their website at palanteharlem.org or call 212-491-2541. And we are back. It's this really is Let Your Voice Be Heard. You stole my thunder. I'm Selena glad Hill. I did. Good. I am Selena Hill. We're back with Stanley Fritz on the PC Ones and Twos. This is the awkward Alyssa, hour. I know. Alyssa Fuchs. <laughs> And we are having a great time behind the scenes. I need to be Snapchatting. If you guys could see what goes on behind the scenes. They can, Selena. We're, we, well, we're if they could streaming. hear it. If they could hear it as well, we would have a reality show. I'm just going to leave it at that, guys. I'm going to tell you something, Selena. You're a woman. And Shut I'm up. a man. Which All means right, they, I'm, I'm right and you're wrong. Okay, thank you for mansplaining nothing to me. I don't mansplain anything. I manspread information. I know, and I hate manspreading as well. You know, get out of my train. Anyway, right, guys, no, so I <laughs> see women manspreading too. So. I do it purposely now. This woman, I do it purposely. Like I consciously go in trains, like work, try my best, like to sit like with my lights <laughs> closed, and it's so uncomfortable. But I do it because I don't want to manspread. And then one time I got in the train, and this woman totally went spread eagle nah. right. Ne- no, seriously. And I was like, I'm sorry, could you move over? And she goes, yeah, sure. And like slightly moved her leg in. <laughs> I was like, what's wrong with you? That's, it, now you guys know how it feels. Yes. And like, I was really uncomfortable because it was 89 degrees. Just like, it was like two days ago, obviously. So <laughs> I was really hot. And it's just, it was just really frustrating, guys. But who else has been extremely hot or uncomfortably hot over the last two weeks? I know Selena is happy because she's not comfortable unless it's 117 I'm degrees. I'm not happy. It's scary. Humid. No, I know. It you're is not. very scary. Selena is scary happy, though, because, you know, she likes the apocalypse and whatnot. But it's been right, really like she's gonna get to go to Jesus. Yeah. All right. You <laughs> know what? <laughs> anyway, like, we're, ha 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 on faith, right? Ha ha ha. No, no, I was no. Ha ha ha. I'm a believer. Ha ha. That's ha, not. Ha. Uh, nobody's saying it's funny except for you. And Stanley. Yeah, me too. It's funny. Stanley. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, Stanley ha. is. Uh, I meant it more seriously. Sorry. Like you know. I didn't mean to laugh right. so much. But anyways, guys, before Alyssa dropped that amazing joke on Selena. Um, what I was saying was that it has been uncharacteristically hot. And I remember walking down the street with Marilyn about a month ago, 
And she goes, she was going, oh, my God, I love this weather. And I said, this is not a good thing at all. And she goes, yes, it is. It's November, and we're still warm. And I said, yes, it's November, and you're still getting bit by mosquitoes. That's <laughs> not normal. And she's like, no, you don't know what you're talking about. And then the next day, she saw me, and she said, I saw a bumblebee. I'm not happy with this weather anymore. And I said, well, actually, seeing a bumblebee is a good thing because they're like they're dying out and we need them for a lot of things. And she didn't understand what I was saying. So I gave her a 20 minute conversation about climate change, which at the end of it, she woke up and said, oh, hey, want to get something to eat? Did you mansplain? No, but she just doesn't listen to me when I start talking about politics or climate change. She just takes a nap and wakes up when I'm done and asks for food, which is like her thing. I don't blame her. She's cute. I let her. But anyways. The point of the conversation was that we, the earth, the world is getting into a very precarious situation where our water, the water levels are rising in places they should not be rising. Ice is melting in places it's not supposed to be melting. The weather is warm and during seasons it's not supposed to be warming. For example, today, New York, December 13, 2015 at 12.16 p.m. It is approximately 63 degrees outside on December 13th. We are a week away from winter, and it feels like it is March 31st. That is, that's, that's what's going on with the weather. And because of that, states are starting to get worried, and so are other countries. They are starting to get worried because they're realizing that the climate actually is shifting. All those things you read about in those notebooks 10 years ago when you were in class and the teacher didn't know what climate change was, so they called it global warming or same-sex marriage because they were kind of weird and Republican. Well, it's <laughs> happening now. And so for this one magical moment, all the leaders of the world, or at least all the ones with lots of money and lots of bombs to blow people up for no reason to start wars because they don't like some leader and send your children to war instead of going to fight for themselves, they are coming together in Paris, and they are having this great conversation about climate, and they're going to change the world. And you know what? They may have just done that because yesterday they struck a deal. 200 countries struck a deal to make sure that they reduce climate. And what does that mean for us? Well, it can mean a lot of things. It could mean that we're going to be seeing a shifting to renewable energy. It could mean the death of the oil industry. It could mean that we're going to stop having diesel trucks drive through East Harlem and South Bronx, which is causing young children to get asthma and other respiratory issues. It could mean that we're going to be trying to save the bees. It could mean that nothing's going to happen and the climate will get worse and the weather will get warmer. And one day you'll wake up at two in the morning and it'll be sunny outside and you won't know what is happening. It could mean all of those things, but it's not my job to give you the answers because guys, I'm possibly drunk, but definitely an idiot. So to help us to have this conversation, we have on a very special guest, and his name is Ethan Spainer. Ethan Spainer is a climate policy associate on the science and solutions team at the Climate Reality Project. I love the Climate Reality guys. When I first learned how to read last year when Selena taught me, that was the first website that I visited. He supports and advises programs and campaigns on international and domestic climate change law and policy. And climate change is not just about saving the trees. It is not just about hugging a polar bear. It is actually about Jason, who lives on 135th and Amsterdam Avenue, and his house has roaches and rats in there. And he doesn't know this, but their pee and their feces are actually aggravating his his asthma making him sick or Jessica who lives on 196 and will say Inwood and she like you know she has trouble concentrating in school because her apartment is lined with lead and she did not know that and we know that lead lowers your IQ and the school is telling her it's her fault when we're not talking about the indoor air pollution that's happening every single day because we don't have strict enough policy to protect her it, it is all those things it is the, the countries and the, the in Africa it is the family in Nigeria it is the the, the the person in South Asia is all these people. And because I don't know how to explain these things because I'm not smart enough, but I am good looking enough. We have our friend Ethan. So Ethan, thank you so much for calling in. And before we continue, please, sir, tell us what your favorite environmentally friendly alcoholic drink is. 
uh, good Belgian beer. I just picked mm, one up, in yes. fact. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to enjoy that later. I'm, I'm excited to enjoy that later. Ooh, yes, and if it's from Belgium, it makes it even better. Everyone knows Belgian beer is not from Belgium. It's from Crenshaw. <laughs> <laughs> FYI, guys. FYI. Yes, it is not from Crenshaw. So, um, Ethan. Ethan, obviously, I've been over here like having all these conversations about the environment and climate, and I only know two things. One, climate change is real, and two, it is caused by same-sex marriage. Can you tell us what these countries <laughs> were doing to address this and what this, I guess, meeting of minds is called? <laughs> well, marriage didn't come up. But they, uh, what we had is the, the 21st, what's called Conference of the Parties, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. It's uh, every year, pretty much every country on Earth gets together and uh, starts talking about climate change and how we're going to address it. Uh, we've been doing this now. This is the, the 21st year in a row. Uh, it all goes back to a treaty that was signed in 1992 called the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And this was a big year for us. So this was a big year. So like, wait, so it happens every single year? Every single year since 1995. So, so they if, signed the agreement in 1992, the original treaty. Yeah. But that didn't, that didn't actually, it, it, it said that we would stabilize greenhouse gas emissions in oh. the atmosphere at a, at a safe level, basically. Uh, a, oh, well. a level that wouldn't, that wouldn't disrupt the climate system. But well, didn't actually tell us how to do that. So we had to start having these meetings every year, starting in 1995. Yeah. Uh, and we tried a few times. We did once in 1997, passed what's called the Kyoto Protocol. That the U.S. Which, uh, didn't sign, correct? The U.S. signed it. They did not ratify it. So they Got took it. it back to the Senate and didn't even submit it for ratification. The Senate said, no way, we're not doing this. The reason being is that uh, the United States and other developed countries, what are called Annex One countries under the convention, they were assigned emissions reduction levels or slight emissions uh, rises, so they would restrain their emissions. Uh, but developing countries, most of the world, were not assigned to those. They could, they could do pretty much whatever they wanted. They included China. That included India. They were expected to report a little bit, but they didn't actually have to reduce emissions because really what comes first for those countries and what should come first is poverty reduction. They needed to develop. They needed to take care of their own citizens. And we all agreed that was the right thing to do. But since the United States didn't sign on, we were at the time the world's biggest emitter. China has now passed us. But since we didn't sign on, the agreement didn't mean that much. And so they tried again in 2009 in Copenhagen. They said, we're going we're gonna to redo it. We're going we're gonna to come up with a new agreement. And this time we're going to get everybody together. It wasn't done as well as it should have been done. I don't think the political capital was there to have it be done. And, of course, Barack Obama had just gotten into office. It was like his first year in office. So uh, the U.S. wasn't really prepared to do the things that we needed to do. And I don't think the rest of the world was either. Okay. So what we did is we said we said we did like a voluntary thing. And in t- 2011, said we're going to try it one more time. We got one last chance. We're going to do it in 2015. That was COP21, ended yesterday. Mm. And it happened. Finally, Barack Jaquan Hussein Obama has accomplished something. Besides causing Obamacare, which is allowing same-sex marriage, and climate change, which is caused by same-sex marriage, he is now addressing these things that's going to help the environment, possibly Barack Obama. (laughs) So my question for you now is we got this COP21 thing happening, and they've come to an agreement, and this is the first time it's it's happened where, like, people are agreeing to these things – like it's in a long time. So now, what does this agreement look like? What does it mean for the U.S.? What does it mean for Russia or these other countries who like to pollute and stuff? 
So the cool thing about this agreement is that everybody signed on and everybody said they're going to do something. The world is still different. The U.S. is still much richer than uh, your average African country or India or uh, even some developed countries. But everyone said every five years, we're going to put forth a new agreement, a new uh, commitment to reduce our greenhouse gases or restrict our use of greenhouse gases. And we're going to review those commitments and make sure that on a whole, we're doing, doing a good job. Developed countries are going to continue to provide financing to help developing countries develop on a low carbon pathway, use more renewable energy, be more resilient to the impact of climate change already. And, uh, and, and yeah, so that is what's called differentiation, the difference between developed and developing countries. I, that sounds very interesting since I don't believe in climate change. I don't know what you just said. But, guys, if you're listening, you can give us a call at 212-650-6903. Again, that is 212-650-6903. Alyssa, explain to me the trees in the forest. Okay, so I actually have a question for you, Ethan, which is, you know, I was reading a New York Times article this morning uh, that basically was saying that a bunch of scientists who are at the talks, who have closely monitored the talks, saying that this is not the agreement that we really needed, that itself uh, this agreement will not save the planet because it just doesn't go far enough and because it doesn't have anything that necessarily binds uh, countries without, I mean, uh, that binds countries to actually act. It does it more through binding them to report certain things and sort of what they call, quote unquote, name and shame. So um, do you, th- I, I was hoping that you could address sort of the contention of some scientists that this agreement doesn't go far enough um, and the idea of how, you know, we have to get, as far as we can get within the political climate sort of that we have. Um, and I guess the political climate doesn't lend itself to an agreement that goes even further. But with this agreement in place, do we expect it to lower the global temperature to the place where we need it to be so that we don't have these catastrophic events that we expect to have if the global temperature goes up past a certain point? Well, first of all, those scientists are right to an extent. This doesn't bind us to anything. It, the Kyoto Protocol tried that, said you're bound to do this. The United States can't do that. If we signed on to something like that, we would have to bring it back to the U.S. Senate and have them ratify it. And I think we all know what would happen if we brought a climate change agreement where the international community set the, the limits for the smoke that could come out of our, our coal plants and out of our natural gas plants and out of our tailpipes. If we brought that, that back to the Republican-controlled Senate, it was, it's not going to pass, not going to pass at all. So what this one does is, it establishes a framework for action. And right now, what's on the table, the commitments the countries have made to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions are not enough. By 2030, they said that it would, the, the UN said that it would raise global temperatures under these commitments, still 2.7 degrees Celsius. And that's too much. They've agreed that the safe limit is two. And in this agreement, they said, we're going to try for 1.5. Right. 1.5 degrees Celsius. Um, Ethan, so I had a question because you just made a really interesting point. You said that, you know, no matter what is signed, what was signed in Paris with this historic agreement, it's not binding. And and you brought up what would happen if we actually try to pass this through in our current Congress now. So that's the question I had. I mean, we had President Obama over there, you know, working for the planet and helping, you know, and, and helping us when it comes to combating climate change. But, you know, when it comes to the Republicans, like, aren't they actively trying to make like undercut Obama right now and didn't they actually do something to show like you know what Obama I don't care what you do over there 
here in America, we are not going to stop carbon emission because it's going to mess with our coal industry, and we're not going to we're not going to have people losing jobs, and we're not going to have these lobbyists getting back, um, getting mad at us because they put money in our pockets. And that's true, and they are trying very, very hard to stop this. And we've done a great job of protecting it so far. And President Obama has done an amazing job of using his executive authority to do what is best for this country in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions from coal plants, reducing them from from automobiles, making your cars more fuel efficient. But the Republicans do continue to try. The fact of the matter is is that they don't have the support of the public. About 65-75% of the public likes the clean power plan, the rules that the EPA put in restricting greenhouse gases from from coal-fired power plants and natural gas plants. And uh, it, it just makes it that much more important for citizens like you and I, and especially groups like the Climate Reality Project, to make a lot of noise and really get people on our side. And say, um, so it looks, looks like we lost um, Ethan for a moment, but like while he is away, I will give you some context behind the Clean Power Plan. The Clean Power Plan was um, pretty much an initiative started by the um, President Obama and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to reduce carbon emissions by the levels they were at in 1992 by the year 2030. And the way that they want states to do this is to come up with their own plans to like reduce emissions in their states using green or clean energy resources. So um, my organization, We Act for Environmental Justice, has been work, doing a lot of work around that because we want to make sure that no matter what plan they use, states use to reduce emissions, they include the communities who are hit the hardest by climate change in this process because you might be doing something that reduces emissions, but then in order to do that, you have to push like a practice that's bad for the environment somewhere else. It usually gets pushed to poor neighborhoods. So, for example, um. We have a sewage treatment facility on um, 145th Street and Riverside, right? And usually when you have a sewage um, facility, you put it at the lowest level because, like, it's sewage that has to drain. It's at the highest point in New York. Pardon me, in Manhattan. And, like, that's one of those cases because 59th Street didn't want it. Chelsea didn't want it. So they put it where they thought they could get away with it. Right. Forming environmental justice. But, guys, we do have to go on a quick break. And when we get back, we'll continue this conversation with Ethan. We'll continue talking about COP21. And we'll continue talking about ways that we can become more climate resilient. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. Some nerve you have to break up my lonely. And we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, The Voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, we are talking about the COP21 conference, a conference on climate change that we have been doing for over 20 years now. And today it actually mattered because yesterday they came up to an agreement to reduce carbon emissions. On the line with us, we have, um, and I'm going to butcher his name, so I want to make sure I go to my notes so I don't get it wrong. Ethan Spanner, and he is the policy associate at Climate Reality. So Ethan has been helping us kind of understand what's going on at the COP21 conference, the agreement, the deal, how it affects America, other countries, and how it affects U.S. citizens. I know Alyssa had a question, so we're going to throw it to her first. Alyssa, go ahead. I do. Good morning, Ethan. Um, Alyssa Fuchs here. Um, you know, actually, when I was prepping for this segment yesterday, I happened to look you up, and I noticed that you went to law school and that you have a legal background as well. Um, so I guess my question actually is about that, and I realized that you 
you do work in policy now for climate reality, but I was hoping you can give us some insight into the Supreme Court overturning the uh, EPA air pollution rules. That was back in June. The Supreme Court um, had a case. It was Michigan versus the EPA. They ruled that the EPA did not properly consider the costs of the regulation. Um, And then the next day, literally the very next day after the ruling came out, the EPA basically said the Supreme Court ruling won't stop them from enforcing climate change rules. So I was hoping that, you know, using the fact that you have some of a legal background and as well as a background working in these climate change issues that are so important, you could address the Michigan versus the EPA ruling and talk about how that may play into this larger conversation of the talks that happened in Paris this weekend or the past two weeks. Sure, no problem. So what that, uh, what that particular case was about was about uh, hazardous air pollutants under a, a different part of the Clean Air Act. And you do have to take costs into account uh, in that case. Under, uh, when, when you look at when you put together a regulation, you say, how much is this going to cost and how much, uh, what's the public good that comes out of it? Uh, in that case, you know, I'm not terribly familiar with this, this one right now, but uh, it didn't affect the the Clean Air Act in the terms of the Clean Power Plan because it's under, first of all, under a different rule. Second of all, they were putting together the Clean Power Plan in a way in which it's very flexible. So the states are allowed to uh, make their own rules, determine how they're going to meet the targets that's been Looks like we lost Sean again, having some trouble with the phone, so we'll get him back. But he was just once again explaining the Clean Power Plan, like I mentioned before, about like, you know, like how states have flexibility to kind of make their own rules and determine how they're going to reach the targets. But Alyssa wanted to give you guys some context behind the COT21 deal. So, Alyssa, the floor is yours. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I actually was hoping that we would get this from Ethan, but since we're having some phone trouble, I'll give you some of the details. Uh, One of the main things is that the countries will pursue efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which which is uh, above the pre-industrial levels, recognizing that that would be a significant way to reduce the risks and the impacts of climate change. Uh, two, they would help to the countries who are involved in this would help to preserve the forests by reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation and uh, doing sustainable management of forests through conservation. Uh, three, uh, there would be some financial responsibility in that um, developed countries would take a lead in mobilizing climate finances uh, from a wide variety of sources in in being able to help other countries, developing countries, to fund some of their efforts since, as I think our guest rightly pointed out, the reason why the 2009 Copenhagen thing really sort of fell apart and also the previous agreements haven't worked is because the developing countries were not subject to the same rules. Um, there would also be increased transparency, a framework for action and sur- for support between these countries, and there would be a balance uh, between emission sources and removing uh, some of the greenhouse gases in the second half of the century. Uh, And the big part about this is that every single party to this agreement uh, would have to come back every five years and report how they were doing to the other parties. Uh, And that was sort of the name and shame type of thing. So if they're not meeting their obligations, the other countries are going to know about it. Stanley. Go ahead. Oh, thank you. Um, So so we have Ethan back in the line. And again, guys, he's calling in all the way from Paris, one of my favorite countries in the world. Outside of America, um, I wanted to talk about. I'm uh, sorry, Paris is a city. Thank you, Alyssa. He's he's calling in from France. Um, shows how much I learned when I was over there. Nothing. Exactly. 
I was just eating food and having fun. Okay, so here's the question I had. Ethan, was this covering this conference, COP21, in any way frustrating? I was following along. Not too, not, I wasn't too delved into it, but, you know, I was following it along, and I saw that China and India, in particular, didn't necessarily, like, they had some apprehensions, and they didn't necessarily want to sign on to the bill, because this would affect, you know, their ability to develop and make money, and to continue to develop into this capitalist society, and the thing is, America and all of the other industrialistic countries are really responsible for all the carbon emissions. And China. And, 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 and China. And excuse- India. Yeah, those countries are the greatest contributors yeah. to emissions. Yeah, like they're the big, they're the big troublemakers. So it was frustrating. Wow. Yeah. So this is what happens when you call from Paris. It can get a little you know bit. Know how iffy. it goes. Did we get it? It. You still there? Yeah, yeah, we got you. It can get a little bit frustrating. You know that there are going to be speed bumps. You know that when meetings get pushed back, that there's a problem. But I have got to give all the credit in the world to the French government for the way that they conducted themselves over the past year to just get countries together at many different points during the year, have them come into the room, get them to the table, talk about their differences. So um, we lost Ethan again. No, do we have him? He's just cutting out. Yeah, he's just cutting out at the moment. So we we did lose Ethan. I'll keep his um, mic on so that when he comes in, we'll get him. But he was pretty much talking about the way that the French government has worked to kind of um, coordinate this process and make sure that everyone was on the same page so that we could eventually come to a deal. And he's absolutely right because when we look at this thing, we look at it from the purview of America and what America is doing. But this is a collaborative process, and it cannot happen. It's not just going to happen because Barack Obama goes down there and says, let's get a climate deal. The only way it happens is, is if all these countries work together. Right. And I think and this is the one thing I really wanted to ask, Ethan, unfortunately, uh, you know, we're having some connection problems. But which is, you know, do we expect these countries to actually follow through? Like, how do we expect countries like America, where on one hand we have the president who's pushing clean climate power plan um, and we have a good majority of people in this country that support that plan as Ethan Parton now, but we have people in Congress that are obstructing it. And so, you know, how are we going to actually reduce our emissions here in America and how are other countries going to actually follow through uh, considering the fact that they're not bound and how does sort of our own politics, internal politics within a country conflict with the greater diplomacy that we saw at this conference? Um, You know, I know that some of that or my personal feelings on some of that is that you know, things are not going to happen. But I also want to be optimistic that with the shaming that when we have to come back and report and if people are not upholding their ends, that other countries are going to shame them because at the end of the day, like we have one planet and, you know, we're all on it together. And if, you know, not everybody's got to be everybody's got to be on the same page, because if everybody's not on the same page, then other countries are going to continue to pollute. And it doesn't matter what we do. Um, if they keep doing it. So everybody's got to be on everybody else's back if we actually want to not come up to that threshold that scientists say is unsafe and is not sustainable. Ethan, um, glad to have you back. Uh, the question I want, I want to transition this to now is how does this affect just regular Americans? Like, How should we be looking at this agreement? Oh, we, do we, did we <laughs> lose like him we, again? I guess we did. You know what? He's so... There okay. we go. I yeah. think there's a delay, so why don't we give him a second after we ask a question? That's a good point. Go ahead, Ethan. Well, first of all, in terms of China, okay, good to be a low carbon to develop on a low carbon pathway is the right way to do things anymore these days. 
the costs of renewable energy are falling incredibly. You've seen the smog and the coal pollution in places like Shanghai and Beijing, New Delhi. This is really affecting the quality of life of their citizens. And I think in part why China decided that they wanted to start addressing climate change is that they understood that it was hurting their citizens and it was hurting the ability for the Chinese economy to grow any further. And now they're starting, if you, you change to a low-carbon economy, you see this, this green economy grow, the jobs that grow with it, the gross domestic product and economic output that comes with it, and you end up with a more better, sustainable society and more healthy society because of it. In terms of how it affects us as the normal person, ideally, it won't affect you at all. Mm. You'll, we're not trying to go backwards here. We're not trying to turn ourselves back to the Middle Ages. We want to progress as a society continuously, but in order to do that, we need to make sure that the way we do it is sustainable. When you go and you flip your light on or you start your car, you know, at some point it'll be an electric car, mm-hmm. it should happen in pretty much the same way, and you won't know where your electricity is coming from. I mean, do you, do you think now of the, of the coal plant where your electricity might be coming from, or in your guys' case, it might be from Indian Point, from the nuclear plant? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, so if it's coming from solar or if it's coming from wind, it shouldn't make that difference either. Yeah. Uh, and it, hopefully the biggest difference you see is the way that the economy is growing. So what do we say to people that say that, you know, at least in America, oh. that what that say, oh, well, we're going to lose all these jobs, all these coal jobs, all these oil jobs. Um, you know, even people are saying or actually and take that one step further. People are saying, oh, well, let's do fracking instead, because, uh, you know, we've actually found that fracking helps to reduce the amount of emissions that are going on. I mean, on when somebody like me says, like, let's go green completely, screw fracking, Um, you know. So what do we say to those people when it comes to jobs? Like the everyday person who's going, well, if we get rid of coal, then I don't know how I'm going to feed my family. Like, what do we say to that person uh, when it comes to this agreement about how, you know, like, how do we explain to them there may be a job in green energy for them? Is there going to be? Like, how do we counteract that notion of like, I'm against this because it affects my pocket? Well, the facts tell themselves, I think, tell the story right there. I was just saying there are twice as many solar jobs as there are coal jobs in the United States. You look, I just saw this week that the Tesla Gigafactory in Nevada that's building batteries for not just Tesla cars, but also starting to work on batteries for your home that can store solar power, that can store uh, any type of electricity that you bring into it. There's like 2,000 jobs online right now that are open just for that factory. And there are more of those factories coming from Tesla, from other companies. And then the second part to that is that there are parts of the country that are going to be negatively affected and are already being negatively affected by the downturn in coal. Let's not mm-hmm. pretend coal is a industry. It's, it's not. It's going downhill. And President Obama has instructed the EPA to do some, some very cool things uh, that take care of those in coal mining areas, help them transition and learn new skills, uh, give them the security to know that if they do lose their job, that they'll have a safety net to fall back on. So we're not going to lose these people. We're not going to leave these people behind. That's not the American way. The American way is to transition to a new opportunity, grab that opportunity, and keep going forward. 
Right. Um, and again, guys, <clears throat> if you're listening and you want to tweet us, you can tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio. We are talking with Ethan Spainer. He's from the Climate Reality Project. Uh, he's calling in all the way from Paris. So I just want to say, so is this a, the deal that came out of Co- um, COP21? Is this something that we should be applauding? Or, you know, what's the next move? You work in an, a climate change um, a, 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 a organization that combats climate change. Stanley works for a, a, a company that also, um, a not-for-profit actually, that works against um, for environmental justice. So, like, what do we do? Like, what should these organizations on the ground here in America start doing? Well, we can applaud it for now, but, you know, tomorrow we should start the hard work. Uh, And Stanley, and you guys are exactly right, that climate change is not just an environmental issue. It's a social issue. It's a justice issue. It's an economic issue. You should, I'm of the opinion that all the noise you make to talk about the climate crisis and its urgency is good noise. We need to counteract those who are spending billions of dollars to shut us up. So get to your communities, find uh, find, a, find a group in your community that's working on especially justice issues that go around climate change and environmental issues, around economic issues, around clean energy issues. At the Climate Reality Project, we have a few trainings every year where our chairman, Al Gore, our founder and chairman, Al Gore, goes through a slideshow, teaches you how to become a good climate activist, teaches you how to tell the story of climate change. And we're going to be bringing one of those trainings to the United States next year. We're not sure when or where yet, but you just keep an eye on climaterealityproject.org. And as soon as we have the details, they'll be up there. Thank you very, very much, Ethan. Thank you so much for calling in and giving us this great information. And hopefully people are engaged, excited, and ready to become active because that is always the goal. So, guys, it is time for me to give... God bless you, Stanley. I know, right? Goodness. Something's it's time, going around. It's the climate. It's climate it's, change. <laughs> that really caught me off guard. But anyways, guys, it's time for me to give a closing statement. And, I mean, what can I really tell you? Well, I can tell you this. On Monday, I got a news alert. And I think most people who um check their emails got a news alert that people in um, northern Manhattan should stay indoors because there was an air alert. So there were certain particles in the air that were going to make you sick. That we're gonna hurt your that we're gonna hurt your health and your quality of life, and we know that because some of our friends actually were extremely sick because of this air alert, and those kind of air alerts are happening all over the place right now. In China, they have smog days where the smog is so bad children cannot go to school because they're getting asthma attacks, they're passing out, they cannot breathe. You have certain countries in Africa where there is no clean water because there have been so much drilling going on over there, whether for coals, for diamonds, or natural gas. Because we know that in New York, natural gas um, drilling is banned, but not necessarily in Sierra Leone or maybe in Ghana. We know that there's a town right now in Ohio that has earthquakes now because, once again, hydrofracking, that natural gas drilling, has now affected the the quality of like of their water and also has caused low level earthquakes. We know that this issue of climate is happening all over the world. So while this COP21 deal may not seem like it is the biggest thing or the biggest deal for all of us, it is a very huge deal. It is a huge deal for these countries who have not contributed to climate change but are suffering the effects from it now. It is a huge deal for the person who used to work in a coal mining factory and lost his job and is wondering how he can take care of his family because now all of a sudden he may have a new opportunity with solar panels or wind farming. It is an opportunity to be climate resilient, to be intelligent, to be smart, and be deliberate about the way that we live our lives, breathe our air, and build our energy. And if we are smart and we want to see a prosperous future, we will go all in. Because if we don't, we'll be underwater, overheated, and overexposed. And we can't survive like that. There's no other option. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. I'll be right back when we return. It'll be the quickie.
And we are back. So uh, we're going to shift gears a little bit. I know we've done a lot of talking about gang violence in Chicago and about the climate summit, uh, but now we're going to bring it back to a national issue here domestically in the United States. And we're going to talk about this white woman whose name is Abigail Fisher, who's spoiled. Okay, maybe she's not spoiled, but she is a woman who did not get into the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, In 2008, they rejected her application because she did not meet their criteria um, because she just wasn't smart enough to go there. And now she's 25 years old and she's actually a financial analyst and she graduated from the Louisiana State University, but she's still suing. Um, And that is because, as I mentioned, seven years ago, she was denied admission to the State University in Austin, and she sued back then, and she claimed that she was denied admission because of the way the university's affirmative action program was administered. And basically, she claimed that she didn't get in because she was white. Um, And... Yeah, I know. Uh, I mean, come on. Come on now. So now the school claims that she just didn't meet their criteria. But even now, even after she has gone to college elsewhere and finished, her and her lawyers are still trying to gain a victory. uh, And the University of Texas's attorneys are still trying to get the case thrown out. Why? Well, why is because the stakes here are huge. Uh, SCOTUS's decision could go so far as to make it unconstitutional for public universities and college to take race into account at all. So basically, they could, this case could kill affirmative action all over the country. Um, or they can they could bar those institutions from considering minority students' educational talents or lack thereof as admission factors. Um, this case was heard on Wednesday, December 9th. Uh, the justices heard the dispute. The main issue is whether university, the University of Texas, used race in an unconstitutional way when they picked their freshman class in 2008. And if so, uh, was Fisher kept out of that class based on the fact that she was white? As I said, Fisher believes that she was excluded solely because she was white based on what she views as a flawed race-based admissions policy of the University of Texas. The, the university says that her scores were not high enough and that she was not eligible for an automatic placement in the class, and there was no way she would have been admitted even if she was not white. Now, the court has actually tried to stay out of who's right and who's wrong. Instead, the court is just looking generally at Texas admission policy itself uh, and as if neither of these views matter. Um, now, some of the justices actually hold a deep-seated skepticism about race having an influence in public policy making. The number one person on this is actually Justice Thomas, uh, who is the only member of the Supreme Court who is African-American. And basically his thing is that we shouldn't have affirmative action because we shouldn't discriminate or we shouldn't make any qualifications based on race. And he says essentially that equality means true equality. It means that, you know, We shouldn't give people a bump or a boost based on historical underpinnings of institutionalized racism. We should say, hey, you want to get into the school? You want to be treated equally to white people? Then, you know, you have to compete and you have to get in based on your merits. And whoever's the smartest person, whether they're white or they're black, they should get in. And that's Clarence Thomas's view. That's not my view. I'm just putting it out there. He actually um, thinks that affirmative action should go away. Uh, So let's take it a step back. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, that's the lower court in this case, they have actually twice upheld Texas's admission policy. Each time they have ruled that the program makes only limited use of race and it serves the university's interest in a racially and culturally diverse student body in a ways that obeys the Constitution. But Abigail Fisher claims that the lower court is disobeying the Supreme Court's 2013 order to reconsider the Texas policy using a stricter standard. Um, So what she's saying is that the court is not looking at it based on the stricter standard. The court's looking at it at the old standard. Um, The Supreme Court's decision in 2013 did not make it 
make race go away for affirmative action, but it did make it somewhat harder for a university to justify its use of race. And it suggests that there has to be a search for a more widely acceptable middle ground when it comes to taking race into effect. Uh, as part of admissions. So to better understand this, you have to understand University of Texas, but uh, what they had before 2004. So actually before 2003. So before 2003, uh, the, stu- the school had a racial diversity policy based on what was called the 10% law. Any student who finished in the top 10% of the graduating class in the Texas high school was eligible for automatic entry at the institution. But in 2003, there was another case that went to the Supreme Court. It was called Grutter versus Bollinger. It was another case that challenged affirmative action and in 2003, the Supreme Court issued a majority ruling that said that the partial use of race was OK in college sti- style admissions. And they set up this thing called the Grutter policy. Um, they basically said that universities could use, quote unquote, holistic plans to that race could not be a divisive factor, but it could be one element in examining all the contributions that an individual freshman applicant was bringing to the table. Abigail Fisher was not in the top 10% of her graduating class, so she paid her $100 admission fee, and she sought entry under the Grutter-like plan that took race into account holistically, and she did not get admitted. Uh, She then went on to claim that the plan violates the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. Uh, On the other hand, the university argues that the plan helps achieve broad form of cultural diversity that the percentage plan could not achieve. So... Uh, what's at stake here? Uh, Fisher's legal papers obviously argued that the use of race in admissions must be a last resort, not the rule. And according to Fisher, if a university wants to take use of race, they have to meet that strict standard that the court laid out. They have to first spell out why they clearly think that they have a compelling interest in their goals. Two, they have to justify the use of race at the time that they adopt their policy. And three, they actually have to provide evidence to prove that using race will achieve the goal that they want to achieve for diversity. Uh, Fisher contends that the University of Texas did not meet that strict standard. And that's why it is unconstitutional. So what ha- the university obviously says they do meet that strict standard. Uh, what happens next? So there's only eight justices deciding this case. There's not nine like usual. Uh, that's because Elena Kagan had to recuse herself because she worked on this case when she was a lawyer for the government. Uh, Justice Anton Scalia made some crazy comments um, about race and what's known as the mismatch theory. I don't have time to get on to that now, uh, but definitely look into the mismatch theory if you're interested in this. Essentially what he said is that African-American students who get into uh, higher level schools based on affirmative action, they don't do as well. They struggle because if they would have gone to a less advanced school, they would have done better. That's the whole mismatch theory that I don't have time to get into. What it comes down to is there's going to be three things that are going to happen. Either A, the Supreme Court's going to kill affirmative action outright nationwide. They're going to say it's an experiment. It didn't work. It can't work. It discriminates against people based on race. It violates the Equal Protection Clause and it's done, done, done and that's it. Two, it could kill affirmative action just at Texas University. It can say affirmative action on its face is constitutional, but the way Texas was doing it was unconstitutional. Then they would have to send this case back down um, to the lower court to, you know, or they would have to tell Texas, change your policy, and then we'll relook at this new policy to see if it meets the constitutionality of affirmative action. Or three, they can actually send this court case back down. What you, Another side note that you should know, and I know I'm running out of time, uh, which is this case never went to trial. It was actually decided on what's called summary judgment, which means it's decided on the lawyer's papers alone. And so the third thing that the Supreme Court could do is say, you know what, if the university says they have more evidence that their policy met these three standards and therefore was constitutional, let's 
send it back down to the lower court. Let's actually have a trial in front of a jury. Let them present the evidence. We'll see what the jury says, and then we'll go from there. So that's what can happen. Um, there's three justices, probably four, who would strike down affirmative action altogether. Scalia, Thomas, Alito, and maybe Roberts. There's three justices, um, Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor, uh, that would uphold affirmative action. And then you have Justice Kennedy, again, sort of in the middle because you don't have Elena Kagan. Um, and so it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in June. Obviously, we'll keep you updated. And when there's a ruling, we will either announce it during a news roundup or we will have an entire segment on it, depending on what it is. On that note, I know we have to go to break. I'm going to throw it over to Selena to yes. close out the show. A break for the whole week. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in. Happy Sunday again. Continue to enjoy. Continue to inform, educate, and empower. Oh, that's what we do here on the Let Your Voice Be Heard. And we appreciate you for supporting us. Check us out at lyvbh.com. Well, see you next week. WHCR 90.3 FM New York.